So you may not know this story, uh, but it really did happen. Just after sundown on October 30th, 1938, aliens invaded America. The first wave of an advanced Martian civilization that was sent to enslave uh, the land of the free and the home of the brave. They landed in an unsuspecting farming town called Grover's Mill, New Jersey, just a short trek from Manhattan and also very close to Princeton University. Professor Richard Pearson was standing watch at Princeton's observatory, and he had just scoped eruptions of blue flames coming from Mars, and he just assumed it was a, a rare meteor shower or some sort of event like that, and he, but he rushed to the scene to investigate. Upon arrival, instead of space rock, he found a large metal cylinder in an open field, and it was still steaming from entry, and in, it was broadcasting these really odd scraping noises from inside of its shell. As the reporters and first responders and onlookers converged on the crash site, the cylinder began to open, and a terrifying monstrosity of alien violence unfolded. On-site reporter Carl Phillips broadcast this chilling report live across CBS's airwaves. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I have ever witnessed. I can see, peering out of that black hole, two luminous disks. Are they eyes? I don't know. It might be a face. But that face, it, it, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. The eyes are black and gleam like those of a serpent. The mouth is V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips that seem to quiver and pulsate. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the alien, and it leaps right at the advancing men, and it strikes them head on. Oh my gosh, good Lord, they're on fire. And now the whole field is caught on fire. The woods, the barns, the gas tanks of automobiles, it's spreading everywhere. It's coming this way. At this point, Carl Phillips' voice abruptly cut out, followed by the eerie hiss of radio static. Five long seconds later, the report resumed and announced Americans' worst fear. Aliens had landed on the eastern seaboard. The National Guard had been called in, and bells rang to warn people to evacuate Manhattan. The Secretary of the Interior urged all Americans to join the fight and stand for the preservation of human supremacy, as he put it. And then came word of more alien landfalls, Chicago first, and then St. Louis. It was pandemonium in the streets. Many people fled in terror. People took refuge in churches. Pregnant women went into labor early. People committed suicide. Looting broke out in the streets. One woman ran into a church prayer meeting in Indianapolis and screamed out, New York has been destroyed. I believed the end of the world has come. You might as well go home and die. Life as we know it was over. Now, as much as uh, some people that I know and some people that you know, the con conspiracy theorists, may want this story to be true, the entire thing was actually a lie. I know, I know, shocking, right? 
Some of you are like, wait, where did I miss this in my high school history class? Like, what? I know I slept through some of it, but I feel like I should remember this. There was no alien invasion. But, but, everything else I mentioned really did happen. Everything else I mentioned really did happen. People did freak out. There was looting. There was women going into labor early. People really did take their own lives. Here's the backstory, in case you didn't know it, that part of history that you slept through. This was the late 1930s, as I said, and they were a tumultuous, crazy time in the United States. Not only did many scientists, this is the first time where many scientists began to speculate because of advancing technology that there was alien life on Mars, so there's that aspect of it, but closer to home, people were living with a great deal of fear and anxiety. America was still on verge I'm sorry, was on verge of war with Germany. The economy was still recovering from the Great Depression, and food scarcity was a very real and very growing threat. Add to the mix of those things, right, on the verge of war with Germany, recovering from the Great Depression, food scarcity, the possibility of life on Mars. Add to all of those things, this is a key detail, that this all happened, what I just said, after dark, on the night before Halloween. And you've got a keg full of gunpowder, right? Just waiting for the spark that would make it explode. And into this sort of scene, into this climate, cultural climate, you enter a guy, young 23-year-old actor named Orson Welles. Orson Welles, again, was a 23-year-old actor and director of a brand new radio show, the Mercury Theater on the Air. This was on CBS radio. Radio was still very much a new art form. And so the people who were sort of the forerunners into this were exploring what could be done with it and different ways that it could be utilized. And Wells, at 23 years old, was considered by critics and all the people who knew this sort of stuff to be a genius and a prodigy. 23 and he was already the director of this. He was way ahead of his time on so many levels. And he had started this show, The Mercury Theater, and it had run 17 weeks. And again, every critic, everybody who's in that sort of like artsy type of world loved it. But like a lot of independent, very intelligent art, it had failed to garner a larger audience. So it didn't have mass appeal yet. It hadn't been widely received. And because of this, he had, did not have any sponsors at all. And his show was up against, coincidentally, the most popular show of the day, a show called The Chase and Sanborn Hour. So he's struggling to make it, and yet he's up against the most popular show of the time, and he doesn't have any corporate sponsorships because he hasn't garnered mass appeal yet. He knew he had to do something drastic or the show was going to shut down. And so he did. He bought the rights to H.G. Wells, no relation, H.G. Wells' novel, The War of the Worlds. And he had his screenwriter simplify it, to an hour-long sci-fi story designed to entertain. And he then updated the setting of War of the Worlds. You probably, maybe some of you have seen the Tom Cruise version of the movie, but he updated the setting of the original novel from Victorian England to modern-day New Jersey, right? As much as we can tell, and it sure seems like it, Wells had no malevolent intent. Like, he wasn't trying to create, like, looting, suicides, early labors, panic in the streets. He wasn't trying to do any of that. But what happened, the most plausible theory all these years later, why this happened, it's, it's this. This is how it went sideways. Most Americans 
we're not listening to Mercury Theater when it's, the show started, right? They weren't tuned in to the broadcast at the beginning. They were actually listening to the more popular Chase and Sanborn Hour. But the timing and the overlap made it so that the Chase and Sanborn Hour that particular week closed with a particular comedy sketch at 8.15 p.m. And so then Americans, when that show was over, tuned their dial to the Mercury Theater at 8.16 p.m., but the show was already had been going for a while. And so at 8.16, all these legions of people across the United States, all those that had radios, and if you know how it worked back then, like the radio could have been the center of a neighborhood because not everybody had one. It was very new. So you have neighbors gathering around in living rooms like people do until to television now to still watch football games, but around radios to hang out. So you have entire neighborhoods in some cases gathered in one or two homes in the neighborhood listening to this right when this is all going on. They turned the dial and they were shocked by a very realistic sounding news updates, right, of mayhem up and down the eastern seaboard, including, and this is a key part too, an emergency broadcast that cut in by an actor who mimicked the president at the time, Franklin Roosevelt's voice, almost perfectly. So it's one of those beep, beep. Remember like the public broadcasting system that you just used to be annoyed at big time? So it's like that, but this is when they just had launched it, just were able to do it, beep, beep. And then President Roosevelt's voice comes on in the middle of all this, right? As you would imagine, people freaked out. Now, why do I tell you this bizarre story? And I'm not going to make you wait till the end like I normally do because I needed to make my point earlier here. I tell you this bizarre story um, because it's a perfect metaphor to capture the thesis of this series that Pastor Jordan mentioned. It's the perfect metaphor to kick off this nine-week series. The reason why I tell you this story is because we are at war. We are at war, certainly not with aliens from Mars, but with an enemy far more dangerous. That enemy is lies. But unlike the war of the worlds, our enemy isn't the figment of an overactive imagination. In this case, there's no hoax, there's no mistake, none of that. Our enemy is very real and very dangerous and is a very significant threat to our lives as we know them. And you can see on the screen, the title of this series is The Three Enemies of the Soul. We'll get to that here in just a bit. At this, this point, some of you might be expecting me to go off on like an angry tirade about the decline of Western civilization and the looming secular apocalypse and an us versus them call to arms like we're at war. It's us versus them. Let's go. It's not that. If, if you know me, I would, that, that would not be something anyway. Take a deep breath. If you were excited about that, I'm glad I'm disappointing you, for real, because my interest is never in creating a monster echo chamber or preaching to the choir. My interest is always in challenging, making us think. In my prayer for this series, Pastor Jordan and I talked about this Friday, he said, what's like your goal for this? And I said, my goal is that we would wake up, that our eyes would be opened, so that we would realize that we're at war and we would realize the enemies, what they are, so I'm not going to go off on that kind of stuff. What we want to do, Pastor Jordan and I, in this series is we want to name the felt experience 
This is going to be on the screen. I'm going to have a lot of slides today, guys, just as a heads up, because this is much, of a, is much more of a teaching than it is a sermon. So we're going to walk through a lot of stuff. So this is my first one for you if you want to know what this series is all about. We want to do what we want to do in this series is to name the felt experience of following Jesus in our cultural moment. And it feels like a war for the soul. We feel this constant conflict. If you're anything like me, we feel this constant conflict, not just out there somewhere in our culture, but in our digital news or in our digital news feeds, right? Because you're seeing all the stuff that's going on. There was this, right, horrible tragedy last night in Indonesia with this, at the soccer game. And you see that stuff and it's like, what in the world is going on? And yeah, we certainly feel the tension and the pain and the difficulty there. But I'm not talking about even that stuff. I'm talking about what's going on inside the fabric of our own minds, What's going on inside of us and our bodies, a kind of inner tug of war that's emotionally exhausting and spiritually depleting, and it's just tearing up our peace and making, us, making it difficult for us to find peace or even know where peace is at or any pathway toward it. Right? On paper, maybe this, is, maybe this is not you, but for many people, on paper, right, everything is fine. You know, you've got a, a, a nice house, a stable job. You've got kids that you love, a spouse that you love. You know, things are fine. Like, you've got food, you've got shelter, you've got clothing, you've got really all you need, right? You've got no obvious reason, at least on the surface, to feel the way that you do. But all is not well internally. Things are fine on paper, but things are not fine off the page so to speak. You might be asking yourself, if you're anything like me at times, you might be asking yourself questions like these. Why do I feel so tired? We have a slide for this too. Why do I feel so tired? Why do I feel so worn down? Not in body necessarily, maybe as well, but in mind. Why do I feel so battered and bruised? Why does every day feel like a battle just to stay faithful, like to keep following Jesus. Forget about advancing. Forget about taking ground or making headway. I'm talking about just being able to stand your ground. Why does every day feel like I have to just go to war to make sure that I don't lose ground or backtrack or backslide or whatever that might look like? Why does it feel this way? Well, here's an idea, and it's the premise of this series. Why, do you, why does every day feel like a battle to just stay faithful to keep following Jesus? Maybe because it is. Maybe because it is. Now, we may, we may prefer to think of following Jesus as a journey. We're on this journey together or as a lifestyle. And I don't mind that language. I use that language pretty frequently. But, but the truth is our spiritual ancestors referred to it scripturally, not so much in those terms, but more so in terms of a war. They weren't afraid to talk about it that way, to use military metaphors. In fact, the Apostle Paul, his two favorite metaphors for the Christian life were battle, war-type military metaphors, and that of athletic contests right, and training. And as a part of this mindset, this war mindset, for centuries before us, teachers of the way of Jesus used a paradigm that's been lost in the modern era. It's that the series is based on, the three enemies of the soul. This is literally gone from, for 2,000 years of Christian history, 
It's been talked about in this way until relatively recently. The three enemies of the soul. What are the three enemies of the soul? I'm going to give you all of them right up front. We're going to spend nine weeks on these. Three enemies of the soul are, number one, the world. And I'm not talking about just the world when it comes to the flesh. I'm talking about the spiritual forces that are at work that Jesus refers to as the world. The ways of the world, the culture, right? The antichrist nature of the world. The flesh. It's the parts of us that are still unsanctified. The parts of us that we've, we want to give over to Christ and we've done our best to give over to Christ, but there's still within us this pulling that goes on and we have these things that we're like, dang it, I've been saved for 20 years. Why am I still doing that, right? All right, there's other things that you left behind long ago. You're like, why was that so easy? Why is this still a battle after 20 years? And there's that part of our own desires, right? And then there's the one we're gonna be spending the first three weeks on today and the next two after this, the devil. The world the flesh, and the devil. Throughout Christian history, teachers of Jesus have seen these three enemies of the soul as alien invaders from hell and a kind of counter-trinity to God himself. So within God, you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the counter-trinity that's named in Scripture is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, while the exact phrase, the world, the flesh, and the devil, don't appear consecutively together in Scripture, it's not used by Jesus expressly, explicitly in those terms, or the writers of the New Testament, the language categories are, for sure. And if you've read the Bible at all, and I mentioned those three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil, you're probably intimately familiar with all the times that those things are talked about, throughout the New Testament especially. If you've read the Apostle Paul, you know he regularly likened, likened excuse me, following Jesus to a war, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago. One of Paul's most famous sayings is something that our entire summer series was based off of, fight the good fight of the faith. He told the Ephesians in one of the more famous passages of his writings, he told the Ephesians to put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And I've said this many times before in the past, but why do you need armor if you're not in a battle? Why do you need to daily put on armor if you're not daily in a battle? So he's naming something there that we oftentimes forget. Paul prayed for Timothy, right? That he would fight the battle well, fight the good fight, but that he would do it well. And he was careful to note as well, and this is an important thing for this series, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? But against the spiritual forces of evil. And we're told that the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. There's a whole sermon on that that I want time for today. But he says that these divine weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. And he goes on to say that these strongholds are things that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. Well, what are the things that set themselves up against the knowledge of God? Primarily, it's lies. Primarily, it's lies. And that's what we're going to get deep into in this series. The truth, though, is honestly, many of us, even in the church, right, 
have left a lot of these ideas behind of sort of a relic of a pre-modern world. Like we have this idea of the world and the spiritual forces and the flesh and all that's going on there and the devil. And we really don't think very often in these three categories. Like it's rare that on a daily basis you wake up and think to yourself about the fact that you're about to do battle with those three things for the next 18 hours or whatever it is, 16 hours until you lay your head down on the pillow again, that you're about to enter in to battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, three things that are present but that you can't quite articulate, but we've left those behind because we're so much smarter now, right? We know so much more than these ancient people. They didn't know all that much. Like, they didn't understand things like we do, right? We laugh at this kind of stuff, the devil, right, as though it's something like, again, a pre-modern myth, like it's akin to Thor's hammer, right, this mythical type thing, or Santa Claus, like, oh, those are just like legends and ideas, but there's no real actual truth in those things, right, and we scratch our heads at the New Testament's language of the flesh, right, in this sort of negative sense, because we live in a sensual culture where we're taught to just be yourself and just follow your feelings, so why would the flesh be a negative thing, because I'm just supposed to, you know, I'm I'm just going to do what I feel is right, right, hashtag you do you, Like, what's the problem with my flesh? Like, it's all good. Like, if I follow my heart, that's going to lead me to everywhere that I want to go. And if I just speak my truth into the universe, the universe will collide and align all on my behalf. Right? Me out of one, out of eight billion people. I'm that special, guys. And when we hear the word the world, right? The world. If you're anything like me, and I, you might have some like, you know, even scars, but you envision like, you know, a street preacher with a bullhorn, megaphone in a public park, you know, railing about the dangers of ACDC and Guns N' Roses and Led Zeppelin. And maybe those aren't the best bands to listen to, but I'm just saying like, that's kind of the categorization of the world. And also the impending rapture. It's a guy with a sandwich board, right? That says the end is near, repent or burn forever or something akin to that. You know, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, we're quick to dismiss these categories altogether, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's like, no, just give me a three-point sermon on how I can be a better husband, and I'll, you know, I'll see you later. I don't really want to deal with this deep, heavy, intense stuff, right? Especially not my own stuff, the flesh. Like, no. And we kind of dismiss those things. But then we wonder, right, we don't want that stuff, or we think we don't. But then we wonder why we feel this incessant tug of war in our chests that sabotages our peace. We wonder why we haven't made any spiritual progress. We wonder why we've been a Christian for the last 10 years, but we basically are the same as we were 10 years ago, that there's been little transformation. We wonder why we struggle with the same sins day in and day out and day in and day out. And we don't want to, don't get me wrong, you're not sitting there enjoying it, but it seems like there's not real intent you know, or understanding of how you can rise above those things and put those things behind us. So again, our intent with this series is to reinterpret the ancient paradigm of the three enemies of the soul for the modern age. Again, our intent with this series is to reinterpret the ancient paradigm, the three enemies of the soul for the modern age. It could be easy to scoff at these ancient categories, but we believe and I hope you do as well, that the world, the flesh, and the devil are alive and well. They're alive and well, and aided by our skepticism, right, or our mocking or our not thinking about them, they are wreaking havoc 
in our souls and in our society, wreaking havoc, right? But I want to say this one more thing before we, we keep going. Our war, so we're, we are in a war. We have three enemies, the three enemies of the soul. But our war against the three enemies is not a war of guns and bombs, right? It's not us versus them. It's not against other people at all. It's a war on lies, right? It's the original sin. So we're going to talk about lies. And the problem with lies is this. This is a key thing. Key thing. There's a bunch of key slides today. The problem with lies is less, I forgot the word lies in there, but the problem with lies is less that we tell lies and more that we live them. It's less that we tell them and more that we live them. We let false narratives about reality into our bodies and they wreak havoc in our souls. Here's how this works with the world, the flesh, and the devil, as the Bible talks about it, especially James does a great job of explaining this. I'm not going to use that text today, uh, but you can go check it out. So here's how this works regarding lies. Deceptive ideas, right? The father of lies. Deceptive ideas come from the devil. If you eat of this tree, you won't surely die, right? The idea is, no, 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 no. You're going to be like God, Deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires. That's our flesh. Well, I'd like to be like God. I'd like to have a knowledge of good and evil. Like, that sounds awesome. Right? I know I'm not supposed to, but man, that sounds good. And, oh, that's true. That'd be amazing. So we do that, right? Deceptive ideas play to disordered desires that are then normalized in a sinful society, the world. Oh, you know, you should eat the apple. I mean, like, if it feels good, do it. Like, I mean, just look how, you know, your heart wouldn't betray you. Your, your desires, those are like primary. Those things wouldn't lie to you. Just, just follow your gut, you know. That apple looks tasty. Just eat it. Everybody just eat it, right? So it's deceptive desires, or I'm sorry, deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Does anybody feel like, yeah, that makes sense? <laughs> like, you know, we're, I'm tracking with that one, right? Two and a half millennia ago, famous book, The Art of War, Chinese military savant Sun Tzu gave this famous advice. He said, know your enemy. It's also a great Rage Against the Machine song. But that's the goal of this series, is to unmask the face of our enemies and to develop a strategy in order to fight back. All right, that's what we're going to do. Is everybody still tracking? This is a lot, okay? This is a lot. And like I said, there's a lot of slides. There's much, a lot of teaching going to go on. So if you feel like you don't get it all, and you're like, I want every single thing you said from a slide standpoint, you can email me. I'll send you all my slides, okay? So you know, happy to do that. So... Let's just start with a basic premise, okay? I think we can all agree that our world right now, October 2nd, 2022, our world, generally speaking, not thriving. Fair enough? Okay. In our country, the last few years have been marked by social unrest, online outrage, widespread disillusionment, 
over the status quo. The pain of 2020 with COVID and all the things that happened in 2020 as well gave birth to one of the largest protest movements in American history. And as much as we'd love to blame, quote unquote, them, whoever them might be, whether it's, you know, the liberals or the conservatives, whether it's Antifa and Joe Biden or the Proud Boys and Donald Trump, whoever it is that you happen to fear or hate, we all know that something is off deep within us. Again, the point of the series is not to look out there so much. It's to look in here, inside our own souls. The war is raging on. There's a, we know, we felt it. The war is raging on, yet many of us feel like a shell-shocked soldier, lost and confused amidst the carnage and the chaos and all the things that go on in a battlefield-type scenario. One of the biggest changes in the past two and a half, three years is that if you're a Christian, you have friends who aren't Christians, you may have seen a shift. They don't just think of you as weird, right, anymore, or they don't just put up or tolerate you or just kind of like laugh it off or not really want to talk about that stuff, right? They view you differently now. Not just weird, not just casual. They view you, in many cases, as dangerous, and they view you as dangerous because they view you as a threat to secularism's alternative vision of human flourishing. Right? I want to do what I want to do. What I want to do is primary. Don't put restrictions on me. Right? Don't tell me that I can't do what I want. You are a threat. I have rights. I have the right to do this and that. And if you're telling me that there's something out there that doesn't give me the right to do that, then I don't want anything to do with it. And I need to stop you because you're suppressing my ability to flourish. As the writer of Hebrews put it, though, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So what I don't want to do is pretend like we're under some heavy persecution related to the persecuted church globally. So what those brothers and sisters are facing is nothing, or I'm sorry, what we're facing is nothing compared with what they're facing. But that doesn't mean that what we're experiencing isn't real and tangible and difficult, that it needs to be talked about and addressed. They may be facing literal physical violence and threat to their physical lives, but for us there's a kind of cultural and socio-emotional persecution that we live under and may carry the weight of it. It's exhausting, right? The stigma the slander, the wound to our hearts. We had some new neighbors move in, I think about a year ago at this time, and um, we finally got a chance to talk to them and got to know the mom a little bit better. She asked me the inevitable question. What's the inevitable question? What do you do? And I tried to think of 30 different ways to say what I did without saying that I was a pastor. No joke. Jordan knows this too. And why is that, right? Because as soon as you say it, the conversation changes. And they assume a whole bunch of things about you that at least in our case, <laughs> they're not true. Because I'm sitting there thinking like, I don't want her to think that I'm part of like this group and I think this way and like, how do I explain? And I literally said, well, I'm a pastor, but I hesitate to tell you that. And she said, why? And I said, because there's so many stigmas attached to that. And it's difficult for me to tell you what I do without giving you an hour-long explanation of all the things that I don't believe, right? And then all the things that I do. But she was really cool about it, understood. But it's, it's a reality. And, and five years ago, I never had to do that. 
Sure, it was still it could be awkward, and people would be like, oh, I'm sorry, I was swearing around you. You think, like, like whatever, you know? Like, I'm not, whatever, but unless it was one of you, and you were just, like, swearing. But anyway, but I mean, like, it's just weird. So here's the thing. The literary motif used by the writers of Scripture for this kind of cultural experience is that of exile. The Apostle Peter opens his first New Testament letter saying this, to God's elect, exiles scattered. And then he says, she, referring to the church, she who is in Babylon, right, sends you her greetings. The, New, the Old Testament scholar and author Walter Brueggemann says it like this, talking about exile. It says, exile is the experience of knowing that one is alien, and perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counterculture, run counter, excuse me, to one's own. Sounds about right. Right? In exile. Exile or Exodus theology is something that's impacted me deeply over the years. It's this idea that stems from the ancient Israelites where they were in slavery in Egypt and they were delivered out of slavery and they had a promised land that awaited them in Canaan. But there was a journey in between, right? The Exodus, that's what the book of Exodus chronicles and is about. So there's a place where they're no longer in slavery, but they're also not yet in the promised land. And Peter is setting this up in the New Testament, saying the same thing for us with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're no longer in slavery. And we know because of the promises of Christ that we have a heavenly home that awaits us and that someday we'll go there. But there's this in-between period, this in-between time, Right? We're not in slavery anymore, but neither are we in the promised land. We're in exodus. We're in exile. We're in a culture that's not really our own. We're strangers and aliens and foreigners here. The New Testament uses that language so much. The Barna Group, if you know who that is, is one of the, is the leading Christian sort of like survey type of group. They've been doing this for forever. They wrote a book a few years back where they called this cultural moment, they called it Digital Babylon. Such an apt description, concise and very all-encompassing. Digital Babylon. If you know what Babylon is in an Old Testament sense, Babylon is the place of absolute lack of restraint, insane decadence, sexual perversion, oppression, like all these, everything terrible that you could possibly imagine that a culture would allow, and not only allow, but glorify and condone, is what we're saying, what Barnard Group says we're living in right now. That's Babylon, and we have digital Babylon. It takes about two seconds online to figure out that that's true, right? They call it digital Babylon because in a pre-digital world, to experience those sort of feelings of exile, you might have had to attend, you know, a far-left liberal university or live in the urban core of a secular city like Portland or LA or London or Berlin, but now all you need to experience Babylon is an iPhone and some Wi-Fi. The truth is this, we are all in Babylon now. We're all in Babylon now. And Babylon is not an easy place to live. It doesn't feel like home. Hence the moniker of exile. It's terrifying at times, even traumatic. We might feel dislocation and a disequilibrium and uncertainty over the future. Every day can feel like a war on our souls, a spiritual assault on our faith, a fight just to stay saved. 
or at least to stay orthodox, to stay faithful to Jesus, to stay sane, <laughs> much less to stay happy and at peace. I've known so many people, so many people that I considered friends at one point, so many people that I pastored at one point, who in the past five years have completely abandoned the faith, completely given themselves over to the culture, to the world, the lies, to Babylon. Unless you think these people were already inclined that way or were weaker than others or were given to those things anyway, almost all of them were a complete shock to me. People that I did ministry with, people that I would have considered seen amazing moves of God, miracles right in front of them, and they no longer even believe in God, believe in Jesus. It's a battle, and it's taking people out. We need to wake up to that fact. Because you probably feel at times when you're under constant pressure to assimilate to this culture, right? Am I crazy to believe what I believe? Am I crazy to live how I live? And everybody else is just going forward and they seem fine. Your soul, like mine, is locked in a war with lies. And like the ancient Spartans who were raised and trained to be soldiers. They didn't have a choice in the matter. That was who they were. That was what they did. There were no ways to opt out. Just like that, we too have no choice but to fight. If you all are a follower of Jesus and you really want to follow him, you are a soldier in a war. And what this series is about, again, to say one more thing about it, is Pastor Jordan and I calling you to war, not to a casual approach, not to a ho-hum version of Christianity, which is really no Christianity at all. Not to optional discipleship, as though that were an option, but to war. I could be delusional. Maybe you're like, none of this really makes sense to me. But let me ask you some questions, and we'll move on here to the last chunk. Have you ever asked yourself, why is my mind under so much duress? Why do I feel inflicted by the ideologies of our time? Why do I feel this tug of war of desires in my own chest? Why do I keep coming back over and over again to self-defeating behavior? Why is there a steady stream of bad news from across the world? Why does injustice rage even though so many of us know it's evil and want to stop it? Why can't we seem to fix the world's deepest problems, even with all our money and our technology and our political prowess and our supposed intelligence? And why do I even care? Why does this stuff weigh on me so heavily? Is there a way that I can just stop caring? Maybe if I get rid of Facebook and get rid of Instagram and no longer watch the news, maybe I won't care anymore. I'm just burying my head in the sand and it'll go away. But then you try that and it doesn't work and you find yourself back on Facebook after six hours because that was as long as you could handle going without it. I'm saying, but consider this, could it be again? Our souls at war are at war with another world. This is to close this section and to move on to the last one. One of the world's greatest novelists of all time, William Faulkner, said this. He said, and this is really an important thing, it's hard believing, but disaster seems to be good for people. Now, that's not to make light of anything, especially this last week that's happened. But we also have seen in our country and in other places where disaster does what? Right, right. So what if exile is something to fight but not to fear? What if instead of coming apart, we came together? What if instead of losing our souls, 
we discovered them. These teachings are about how not to lose your soul in digital Babylon. And this series is a rally cry to the war on lies. So let's talk about the devil. Now I'm going to tell you, I'm going to get through as much of this as I can today. And then we're going to hit it again. I'm going to hit it again next week. So if I come to a place where you're like, that's a weird stopping point. Like Jordan said, we want you to take all nine of these in. So don't miss next week. Okay, this, you're not going to have anything tied up neatly in a bow this morning. You're really not. You're going to have a lot more of, hopefully, this feeling of that you drank from the fire hydrant, the proverbial fire hydrant, in a good way. And I want you to feel that way. I want you to leave with this on your mind to the point that you feel a little disoriented and you're trying to take it all in. Because that means it's stuck with you, right? Rather, I'd rather have you do that than just dismiss it, walk out, and forget about it. So this is the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're starting with the devil, the devil part one. Are you guys ready to talk about the devil? Let me open with this idea about the devil. I think it's a fact. I'd love, if you disagree, we can, we can talk about it. But our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take back control of our minds from their captivity to lies and liberate them with the weapon of truth. That's a big statement. If you're a note taker, if you're a picture phone taker, I might want to note that one. Most of you know, especially if you've gone through something like Christ's life, the ultimate journey, right? You know what is that address fundamentally in a lot of cases. Lies you've believed about yourself, lies you've believed and you've lived into that have affected your lives in deep ways. That's the, that's the devil's work. Can this idea be found anywhere in the teachings of Jesus? Absolutely, it can. One of Jesus' most famous teachings that people even don't even have ever even been in church know is this. Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? Set you free. Why would the truth set you free logically? Because your captivity is something. Well, what are you captivity into if the truth will set you free? The lies. In context, Jesus had just told his followers, he says, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then he says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Pharisees didn't really like that, and they started to antagonize Jesus. They started to say some really nasty things about him personally, not just about his teaching, but about him personally, and he didn't let that slide. Jesus was definitely tender and compassionate, but he was feisty, right? The Son of God's always been a bit of a rebel, we've sang, Right? He responded with a fascinating claim about who the father of the Pharisees was. They made this whole statement about our father is Abraham, and we have this great lineage and this great history, and who are you? You're illegitimate, and all these things. And Jesus says, I love this. He says this. He tells them, he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is what? No truth in him. None. No truth in him. When he lies, man, this is such powerful stuff. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Church growth strategy 101. Don't tell people that their father is the devil. Doesn't usually work. But right out of the gate, let's notice three things from Jesus' teaching about this person that he names the devil. 
Let's start with the obvious. Number one, for Jesus, there is a devil. There is a devil, right? In, in Greek, I'm going to fly through some of these slides, so just so you know. For Jesus, there is a devil. In the Greek, the word Jesus uses for devil is diabolos, diabolical, right? That's where we get that word, which is from a verbal root word meaning to slander or to accuse, can also be translated very literally as the accuser. And it's just one of the many names given to the devil throughout the swath of Scripture. Scripture also calls him the following things. Again, I'm flying through these. The Satan, the Satan, not Satan, but the Satan in the Old Testament particularly. The evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver, the great dragon who deceives the whole world in Thessalonians, the ancient serpent who leads the whole world astray. Notice every example that I listed is just a title, not a name. He doesn't have a proper name like Jesus. Some biblical scholars argue that this is a subtle dig from Jesus, like a deliberate snub, like his enemy doesn't even get the you know, honor of having a name. And others, other scholars, though, say it's a sign of just how dangerous that Jesus finds the devil, that he won't even name him specifically. But here's another thing as a reminder. For Jesus, the devil is not a fictional character, fictional villain from a Harry Potter novel. He's a real and cunning source of evil, and a key here, the most influential creature on earth. And you read that right the most influential creature on earth. Three times, Jesus himself called the devil the prince of this world. I don't have this on the screen, but the word for prince is archon in Greek, which was a political word in Jesus' day used for the highest ranking Roman official in a region. Jesus was saying that this creature is the most powerful and influential creature in the world. In another story, famous one, the devil claimed that he had all the kingdoms of the world to give away if he wanted. And Jesus did not refute that claim. Did not try to correct him. He didn't disagree with him. Now, to go in depth in a biblical theology kind of way, concerning everything about the devil and his origins, there's no way we could do that in this message, but let's take just a minute and sketch an outline. Is everybody still with me? This is, I know this is a lot. I know this is a lot. I don't know how much we're going to get through. I'm going to do my best. Might have to uh, give the kids some extra snacks. I don't know. We'll figure it out, but here's some things about the devil. We're going to go through these quick because they just, I want you to, to grab them quick. Number one, we know biblically, this is biblical theology 101 about the devil. He was created by God. He was created by God. This is key. This is key for a lot of reasons. One of the biggest mistakes I see Christians making, and something I kind of was subtly told, or at least it was inferred growing up, is this. He, he was created by God. He's not God's equal. He's not God's opposite, right? It's not like here and here, okay? He's a created being with a beginning and an end, period, right? He was created by God. He's not nearly as powerful as God. Number two, Biblical Theology 101 concerning the devil. His original role seems to have been the spiritual formation of human beings through testing. Okay, that was his original role in Scripture. Think of how a teacher tests children to bring them to maturity. 
But as we kind of see in the story of Job, he began to drift from his charter and used his skill set to tempt human beings into spiritual deformation. So God used him to actually mature us, but he started to pervert things, okay? We see some of that in the story of Job. Number three, he sat on God's divine counsel. So he was in the inner circle, a group of hand-selected spiritual beings whose job was to collaborate with God's rule over the world. He was inner circle. I mean, he was, you know, weird to say it, but kind of like a right-hand man. But because of that, he chose to rebel against God's rule, to seize the world's throne for himself, and then he, we know he took a third of heaven's angels with him. I mean, think about that for a second, real quick, as a caveat. Think about how powerful and deceptive the devil must be if he's able to convince a third of the angels who live in heaven and see what's going on to leave that. And we think it's no big deal. It's kind of a big deal. He chose to do that. And some people even argue, some scholars even argue that Eden was created in a spiritual war zone. Next, for thousands of years, he held sway as the prince of the world. We know that he was leading lots of people, lots and lots and lots of people. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Vast swaths of human and non-human creatures in their ongoing quest to seize autonomy from God and redefine good and evil as they saw fit. Sound about right? For 2022? Next, he was the animating energy behind many of the great atrocities of history. So where you've seen horrific things, ancient things, more modern things, we'll say World War II and the Holocaust. He was the animating energy. If you know anything about, for example, what Hitler was into, he was deep into the occult, to occultic practices, to messing with stuff of the dark side of the devil. He was very much demonized. Next, we know that Jesus came. We're told in 1 John, super interesting. Jesus came, this is a script verse. Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. That's what John, the one who Jesus loved, one of his closest apostles, names specifically and singularly about why Jesus came. Jesus came for one reason, to destroy the devil's work. If it took Jesus coming and doing what he did to destroy the devil's work, that's a big deal, right? That's a lot going on. Next, Jesus' victory over the devil was like D-Day to World War II. If you know anything about that, you know that it was sort of the pivot point in that war. That if the U.S. and the Allies had lost that battle, we'd all be speaking German, so to, as they say, right? But they won that battle. It didn't end the war right there, but it, was, it sealed the deal. It's like a really master chess player where there's still six more moves in the game, but he already knows he has checkmate on you. You can do what you want, right? But Jesus' victory over the devil was like D-Day to World War II, decisive battle that marked the beginning of the war's end. The devil's fate was sealed, right, on Easter Sunday. It was sealed once and for all, but as we know, there are still many battles to fight. And as such, the devil is a wounded animal. This isn't on the screen, but it's important. The devil is a wounded animal, a dying dragon, more dangerous than ever. And contrary to popular imaginations and popular artistic stuff and even movies and cartoons and stuff like that, the devil is not in hell. 
He right now is not in hell. He certainly doesn't reign over hell. That's a myth. Hell is his eternal place of punishment. It's not a place where he sits on any kind of throne. But he's not there. He's actually here, not in this building, but he's on earth right now. So if our prayer and Jesus' prayer that he gave to us is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the devil's prayer is, my kingdom, hell, come on earth, right? Next, a couple more of these. In this ongoing war, harm, whether it's spiritual, mental, emotional, and even physical, is a very real possibility. Anybody ever experienced this? You ever been wounded? Or had pain even though you're following Jesus? You ever had people betray you that you couldn't believe betrayed you? Have you ever had people abandoned you in your deepest hour? Have you ever had people in authority who were supposed to be following Jesus harm you in some way? Have you ever gotten things twisted in your own mind, messed things up for other people? Right? Followers of Jesus are not immune to this kind of stuff. It's a war. There is real straight-on damage. There's collateral damage. There are things that happen. Right? We're not immune. We bleed red. We suffer and we die along with the rest of humanity. That's why Jesus warned, or I'm sorry, why Peter warns us to be alert and of sober mind because why? The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Are you getting the, are you understanding this, to this point, we're almost done, that this language that the spiritual, the writers of the New Testament use is not casual? He's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, right? That's not like ho-hum. Like you can just take him on with no preparation, no effort, whatever, and think you're gonna come out unscathed or even alive. Last thing, our great hope is in Jesus' return to finish what he started. So all that stuff I just said, we know about the devil. We know he's wounded, dying, trying to take stuff out. But for us, our great hope, right, our promised land is that Jesus will return to finish what he started. He promised that he'll come back again. And on that day, the devil and all of his minions, not the little yellow ones, but like his other ones, will be thrown, it says, thrown into the lake of fire. And all evil will be eradicated from God's creation forever. There'll be a restoration of all things. And we'll take our place as co-rulers with Jesus in this beautiful new kingdom. Now, I'm probably missing some stuff in this sketch. But here's the key takeaway again for today. For Jesus, the devil is real. For Jesus, the devil is real. Not a myth. Not a figment of our imaginations. Definitely not a red cartoon character on one side of your shoulder with a tail and a pitchfork. Definitely not Will Ferrell on Saturday Night Live. Shredding out death metal, if you remember that one. Some of you got that. He's the evil behind so much of the evil in our souls and society. The devil, last, one of the last things. Devil is an immaterial but real intelligence at work in the world with more power of influence than any other creature in the universe after God. And I've got more to go, but I don't know that we're going to get through it today. Just give me one second here. I'm trying to decide. 
let's just go, can we do five more minutes? I think I could bring us to a good point. All right, so all that. But if we're honest, right, frequently we were not. <laughs> to a lot of us, this sounds pretty wonky, right? A devil, really? Come on. Like, we don't believe in talking snakes anymore, much less invisible demons behind current world events. Now we know better. We're smarter, right? As the Hollywood villain Kaiser Soze put it, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. We have that on the screen. If you could place that up there real quick. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Our culture has a really high value for keeping an open mind. So throughout this series, that's what we ask of you, is that you simply consider the possibility that Jesus was right, <laughs> that the devil is real, that he's out there. Let's get to one more point, and we'll be done. One more thing. Second, regarding the devil, number two, the devil's end goal is to spread death. The devil's end goal, so the devil is real, and his end goal is to spread death. Verbatim, Jesus says, he was a murderer from the beginning. What's a murderer? Not a trick question. Someone whose intent is to end life. That's it. Jesus went on to say, the thief, which is another name for the devil, comes only, well, this is a verse we use around here a lot, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come, they may have life and have it to the full. Steal, kill, destroy. For Jesus, the devil is an archetype of a villain who is hell-bent on destruction. And like Heath Ledger's Joker, he just wants to watch the world burn. His motto is tear it all down. Whatever he finds, he wants to stamp it out. Beauty, deface it. Love, corrupt it. Unity, fragments it into a million pieces. Human flourishing, push it to anarchy or tyranny because either one will do. He has an anti-life, pro-death, pro-chaos agenda, and it's insatiable. He's going to do as much as he can, and that's why our news feeds drip right? Over and over and over and over again with chaos and carnage and things we can't even understand. My friends and I used to, we still get together every Saturday night, but we used to have this kind of segment of our hangouts that we used to call, what the heck is wrong with people? <laughs> and it was stuff we'd seen on our news feeds. And it's sort of tongue in cheek because we understand fundamentally that it's a spiritual battle, but it was just like, what the heck is wrong with people? How are they abusing people in this way? Or how are they doing that stuff? And that's why though that secular theories of evil will never add up to what's going on, right? They can't explain it. The only explanation is there's something that we don't fully understand going on. Because you can say, what the heck is wrong with people? And you can go down that rabbit hole for forever. And we try in psychology, nothing against that whatsoever. Um, but like, what the heck is wrong with people? It's going to go back, original sin, brokenness in the garden, all those types of things. Because of that, that's why it feels like following Jesus is a war. And there's no way out of this fight. Last thing I'm going to leave you with is this. Takeaway for today. Last one. To apprentice under Jesus is to become a soldier in a war. To apprentice under Jesus is to become a soldier in a war. If you are here today and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you are a soldier in a war. We're going to be talking about how to fight. How to fight well. 
how to combat these things, how to know your enemy, know his tactics, and then do a good job. But it has to start with this belief that you're a soldier in a war and that this war is primarily against lies. C.S. Lewis said this. Literally going to close with this. There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. If you're following Jesus, you're in a war. Maybe today is the first time that you've recognized it, and if that's so, that was the point. <laughs> and now it's our job to train you how to fight, to see what's going on, because there's no neutral ground. You're either in or you're out. Jesus says anybody who makes themselves a friend of the world makes themselves an enemy of God. There's no in between. There's no on the fence. We're in a war. We need to know how to fight, and that's what this next eight weeks after today is going to be about. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your victory over death, your victory over the devil. Thank you that you told us that we can know the truth and that the truth will set us free so we're not doomed to lead these these lives of perpetual stumbling and failing and all these types of things that we can know. We can have victory. You tell us that we're more than conquerors through you, not through our own strength, but through you. We're more than conquerors. I just pray right now for the next eight weeks of this series. I pray that there are people in this room, people listening at home, people who aren't here today, that they would emerge from this strengthened, ready for the battle, understanding who they are in Christ, understanding how to fight, that they would begin to stand their ground in ways they haven't previously, that their lives would be transformed by understanding who they are. They would realize they're not alone in this battle. I pray that there are people who have been kind of just like ho-humming it, that would put on the armor, that would join the fight, that would get in the game. Pray that nobody would come out of this series this next nine weeks. Pray that not a single person in New Point Church would come out without being changed in some powerful way. There's nobody who sleepwalks through this. And I just right now silence the voice of the enemy and any lies he's even trying to speak right now. Any lies he'll speak, I silence that voice and I just proclaim truth would flood this room for the next eight Sundays over and over and over again. I pray for life groups, there would be powerful discussions that take place about these things. The people who have wanted to stay on the surface would no longer be able to. That we would be drawn out into deep places. Jesus, thank you for the victory that's found in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.